Good morning, everybody. It's a little chilly out there today. It's not just a little chilly. It's cold. How cold is it? Colder than a witch's broom handle. That's how cold it is. Really cold out there. But it's not as cold as it is in Chicago, so take, take solace in that. We're glad you're here. Uh, good morning to you. It was dark when you came in. We'll have some light for you when you go out. That's good. Turn to 1 Samuel chapter 25, and we're going to pick up the story where we left it off before Christmas. And David has been on the run from Saul, and it is absolutely remarkable how uh, David has succeeded by God's gracious hand over these years. He's defeated the giant Goliath. He has outrun King Saul. He has been outnumbered four or five to one or even worse. And he has still uh, been sustained. And yet, here we come to a story uh, in his life where he had the odds. And David is just about to fail miserably. Isn't it interesting? When he was in the weakness, he was in the minority, he was uh, cornered, uh, he seems to be succeeding just beautifully. And now David gets power over another person. He, has, he actually has the ability to defend himself. And we're going to see that he almost fails in his most miserable moment right here. And he had some pretty big failures, as you know. We'll look at those especially in the next chapter, in the next book of 2 Samuel. But look with me at 1 Samuel 25, at this remarkable story, and not only uh, showing us how God goes to work in our lives when, when we think we're strong. We, we actually do better when we know we're weak. But when we think we're strong, we're set up for big-time failure. Uh, we'll see how God intervenes here. And we also have one of the, my favorite characters in, uh, in all the Bible uh, here in this chapter. Her name is Abigail. Let's take a look at it. Now Samuel died, and all Israel assembled and mourned for him, and they buried him in his house at Ramah. Then David rose and went down to the wilderness of Paran, and there was a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel. The man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and a thousand goats. He was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Now the name of the man was Nabal, and the name of his wife, Abigail. The woman was discerning and beautiful, but the man was harsh and badly behaved. Sounds like some other couples that I know. <clears throat> he was a Calebite. David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep. So David sent ten young men, and David said to the young men, Go up to Carmel, and go to Nabal, and greet him in my name, and thus you shall greet him. Peace be to you, and peace be to your house, and peace be to all that you have. I hear that you have shearers. Now your shepherds have been with us, and we did them no harm. And they missed nothing all the time they were in Carmel. Ask your young men, and they will tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we come on a feast day. Please give whatever you have at hand to your servants and to your son, David. When David's young men came, they said all this to Nabal in the name of David, and then they waited. 
And Nabal answered David's servants, Who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I've killed for my shears and give it to men who come from I don't know where? So David's young men turned away and came back and told him all this. And David said to his men, Every man strap on his sword. That's usually my response first thing in the morning too. And every man of them strapped on his sword. David also strapped on his sword. And about 400 men went up after David, while 200 men remained with the baggage. But one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, Behold, David sent messengers out of the wilderness to greet our master, and he railed at them. Yet the men were very good to us, and we suffered no harm. And we did not miss anything when we were in the fields, as long as we went with them. They were a wall to us, both by night and by day. All the while we were with them, keeping the sheep. Now therefore know this and consider what you should do, for harm is determined against our master and against all his house. And he is such a worthless man that no one can speak to him. Then Abigail made haste and took two hundred loaves and two skins of wine and five sheep already prepared and five says of parched grain and a hundred clusters of raisins and two hundred cakes of figs and laid them on donkeys. And she said to her young men, Go on before me, behold, I, I come after you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. And as she rode on the donkey and came down under cover of the mountain, behold, David and his men came down toward her, and she met them. Now David had said, Surely in vain have I guarded all that this fellow has in the wilderness, so that nothing was missed of all that belonged to him, and he has returned me evil for good. God do so to the enemies of David, and more also, if by morning I leave so much as one male of all who belong to him. When Abigail saw David, she hurried and got down from the donkey and fell before David on her face and bowed to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, On me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. Please let your servant speak in your ears and hear the words of your servant. Let not my Lord regard this worthless fellow Nabal, for as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name and folly is with him. But I, your servant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. Now then, my Lord, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, because the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt and from saving with your own hand, now then let your enemies and those who seek to do evil to my Lord be as Nabal. And now let this present that your servant has brought to my Lord be given to the young men who follow my Lord. Please forgive the trespass of your servant, for the Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house, because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord, and evil shall not be found in you so long as you live. If men rise up to pursue you and to seek your life, the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living in the care of the Lord your God. As the, as the lives of your enemy, enemies he shall sling out as from the hollow of a sling. And when the Lord has done to my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you, and has appointed you prince over Israel. My Lord shall have no cause of grief or pangs of conscience for having shed blood without cause, or for my Lord taking vengeance himself. 
And when the Lord has dealt well with my Lord, then remember your servant. And David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. Blessed be your discretion, and blessed be you who have kept me this day from blood guilt and from avenging myself with my own hand. For surely as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, who has restrained me from hurting you, unless you had hurried and come to meet me, truly by morning there had not been left to Nabal so much as one male. Then David received from her hand what she had brought him, and he said to her, Go up in peace to your house. See, I have obeyed your voice, and I have granted your petition. And Abigail came to Nabal, and behold, he was holding a feast in his house, like the feast of a king. And Nabal's heart was merry within him, for he was very drunk. So she told him nothing at all until the morning light. In the morning, when the wine had gone out of Nabal, his wife told him these things, and his heart died within him, and he became as a stone. And about ten later, days later, the Lord struck Nabal, and he died. When David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Blessed be the Lord who has avenged the insult I received at the hand of Nabal, and has kept back his servant from wrongdoing. The Lord has returned the evil of Nabal on his own head. Then David sent and spoke to Abigail to take her as his wife. When the servants of David came to Abigail at Carmel, they said to her, David has sent us to you to take you to him as his wife. And she rose and bowed with her face to the ground and said, Behold, your handmaid is a servant to wash the feet of the servants of my Lord. And Abigail hurried and rose and mounted a donkey, and her five young women attended her. She followed the messengers of David and became his wife. David also took Ahinoam of Jezreel, and both of them became his wives. Saul had given Michael, his daughter, David's wife, to Palti, the son of Laish, who was of Galam. Okay, we're going to look at David now, who is in a position of power and strength, humanly speaking, and who is about ready to fail miserably until God intervenes for him. This chapter, as beautiful as it is about Abigail, and I'll speak about her in a few moments, it's absolutely gorgeous about God and what he does to spare us, his servants. Now let's look at verses 1 through 13 as the plot is set for us, and we see that sometimes evil and folly seem to overwhelm us. Sometimes evil and folly seem to overwhelm us. And that's what's about to happen to David. He's about to be overwhelmed with foolishness. Overwhelmed with folly. Now notice, first of all, this is not just incidental. In verse 1, the chief advisor, David's chief advisor, is gone. We're told that Samuel died. Now, all Israel mourned, and uh, they buried him. But David especially mourned. You can imagine, uh, Samuel was the one who anointed David. Samuel is the one who confronted Saul in his wickedness, and uh, who announced that Saul was rejected, and David was the accepted king. Samuel was the one that advised David. We have hints of that throughout. So Samuel was the old Billy Graham. And uh, David could go to him and access him anytime he needed him, anytime he wanted him. And Samuel was a great guide to him. And some of you have, have had men like that in your lives too. And maybe it was a special businessman or a person in your 
in your medical profession or somebody who was kind of the senior person that you really looked to who gave you great advice, then they die. You know what that feels like. Some of you had your fathers die. And you know, a few days after the, bar- the funeral, you pick up the phone to call your dad, and you realize, oh gosh, he's not here anymore. Uh, you're just used to having that consolation of somebody to talk to, and they're gone. And when that happens, of course, you're vulnerable. Uh, you're in grief. Uh, you're, you're working out your grief, and this is the situation David is in. He, we're told here that David rose up and went back to the wilderness, obviously saddened by this death and feeling alone. And David lost his most trusted advisor. But watch how God undertakes for him. And God does in a very special way. But sometimes we feel overwhelmed by these things. We feel alone. I think David may very well have felt that way. Then in verses 2 through 12, you get the heart of the matter here in the evil that's before us. That is, the local chief is a fool. Now, the word Nabal is the word fool. There are three words for fool in Proverbs. Nabal is one of them. And uh, this Nabal is, I mean, even in English, Nabal, just a bullheaded, blockheaded, stubborn idiot. Uh, That'd be one way we might uh, describe it. Uh, He's he's truly a fool. He was very rich with his 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. uh, And uh, he was very protective of his goods. He was really owned by his property. You can see it. He's a slave to his property. He's protecting his property like crazy. He ends his life just luxuriating in his property. And his property ends up killing him. Uh, 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 God does it, of course, but uh, he just ends up in an orgy in his own property. Here's a true fool. Now, I don't think his mother named him Nabal, to tell you the truth. I mean, what mother would name, oh, here's my son, fool. Uh, I mean, yeah. so, obviously, uh, somebody gave him that name a little later on. I think Nabal, honestly, from the character that's revealed here, he earned that name. Probably it was in the playground somewhere. The kids started calling him Nabal. But it stuck. Why did it stick? Because that's the way he acted. Now, notice that David goes to him, and uh, there are all kinds of speculations as to what David's up to here. But I, to me, it just seems pretty simple. Uh, David is out in the wilderness. You know that he's still fleeing Saul. He's having to be on the, on the run all the time. He's the future king. A lot of people know that, including Abigail. She knows it, that he's the one who's anointed to be the king. He's in the southern territory, which is kind of home territory. Uh, this, this area of, um, of Maon uh, is just about seven miles south of Hebron. So it's down in the southern area where David's name would have been particularly well known and, and where he should have had some support. So people knew that he was the emerging king. They knew that he was having to flee from Saul. So David's out in the fields, and in his own integrity, he guards the sheep and the shepherds of this man Nabal. He doesn't know Nabal, but he's guarding other people's property. When he sees criminals coming along trying to steal sheep and goats and other things, David's men take up for Nabal's guys. So David's just out there basically doing some good. So David has the right to expect I'm the future king right now. I'm having to flee from this wicked king, Saul. And I have a right to ask of my neighbor to help me out. I'm protecting his sheep. I'm protecting his men. Everybody knows I'm on the run. I don't have any other uh, visible means of support. And I need to ask for help. And certainly, if you're familiar with Mideastern hospitality, uh, you just you, it, they're some of the most hospitable people in the entire world. I mean, if you, if you go and uh, need help... Uh, in the Middle East, 
and you knock on a door and ask. It's, it's their custom. They must take you in and care for you for a certain period of time. And so David's just asking for, for major hospitality, and he thinks he's earned it. It looks kind of like he has, doesn't it? So David just sends ten young men, not the, not the, the, the big cheeses, the, the young men who would be no threat to Nabal, and they send a message, and they and look at if you look at verse eight, David introduces himself as your son. Uh, he's he's presenting himself as Nabal's inferior. He's using all kinds of proper language uh, to show respect for Nabal, but he makes a clear request here, and uh, you can see the response. Uh, <laughs> look. This is just amazing. Verse 10, who's David? <laughs> Come on. This guy is so proud, so arrogant, he won't even admit uh, that he knows who David is. Of course he knows who David is. Everybody in the South especially knows who David is. Uh, he's the son of Jesse who's uh, arising as a future king. And who is the son of Jesse? Well, he just said he knows who David is. He's the son of Jesse. He just admitted it in his stupid question. Who is this son of Jesse? And he, and he goes on then not only to, to say that David's a nobody, but look at the latter half of verse 10. He says, ah, he's, just a, he's just a runaway slave. Just completely dissing David. He says, there are a lot of runaway slaves. Why should I support him? Just complete myopia, complete narcissism. It's unbelievable. Then look at verse 11, and you see the word my at least four times here. Why should I take my bread? my water, my meat that I've killed for my shears and give it to people I don't know came from where. <laughs> so David's men take this back to David. This man was rich and he was arrogant. He was self-centered and he was truly foolish. Uh, let's uh, leave your finger there in First Samuel. Just look with me for a moment at sort of a biblical description of folly. Look, look in Proverbs, for example. Uh, Proverbs uh, 18, this will be on page uh, 1168, 1166, um, verse 7, chapter 18, verse 7. A fool's mouth is his ruin, and his lips are a snare to his soul. Or back up a verse, previous page. A fool's lips walk into a fight. And his mouth invites a beating. Does that not describe Nabal? And that, there's the word Nabal for you right there in those verses. Now turn, turn it on over to uh, uh, Isaiah chapter 32. Uh, incidentally, look at this description of folly and this description of Nabal. Isaiah 32, 6. This is page 1296. Uh, Isaiah says, For the fool speaks folly. And his heart is busy with iniquity to practice ungodliness, to utter error concerning the Lord, to leave the craving of the hungry unsatisfied, and to deprive the thirsty of drink. It's the fool who doesn't feed the hungry. It's the fool who doesn't water the thirsty. And he's always not only ignoring the needs of others, but he's even picking a fight. There's your biblical description, Nabal fits the description perfectly. Now, if you look at verse 13, you see not only that the chief advisor is gone, the local chief is a fool, but the chief believer is royally ticked off. 
look at verse 13. David just says, strap on your sword, boys. That's it. I've had enough. Well, I mean, you can understand it. David's been, shall we say, patient. How many times has he guarded the life of the Lord's anointed when the Lord's anointed was trying to wipe him out? You have this classic example that we looked at before where Saul comes in to relieve himself, probably not number one, but number two, and David just clips off the end of his robe and even feels badly about clipping off the end of his robe to prove to Saul uh, that he wouldn't take his life. And then later on, going into the midst of Saul's own forces and taking Saul's spear to prove to Saul that David was protecting the life of the anointed. How patient David has been. How many insults. David has endured. How many times has David been deceived and lied to? And David has endured through all of that by God's grace. And finally, this knucklehead, Nabal. Who in the heck is he? Who does he think he is? I've had enough. I've had all this from Saul, and I've been a very patient man, and, and Samuel's dead. I'm in grief. I'm going to kill somebody. Have you ever felt that way <laughs> on a Thursday morning? <laughs> Welcome to Amen Bible Study. That's the way David's feeling. Just, you know, okay, that's enough. That's it. I'm through with it. Strap your sword on. We're going into this one. Now, behind that, of course, David knows he's likely to win this battle. He wasn't likely to defeat Saul, but uh, he was likely to win this one. He was starting to feel a little self-confidence. It's very dangerous when you're feeling self-confidence. It's very dangerous when you get power. You know, uh, sometimes old men are known to be kind of gruff and uh, blunt and direct, and some of it is just, you know, just old age, just don't feel good. Some of it is that you've got to a certain point in life that you're like Teflon, nobody can really hurt you, so I'd a heck with manners. I'm just going to treat people the way, I'm just going to be honest. You know, I'm an honest man. I'm straightforward, straight shooter. And uh, we just forget our diplomacy that we had when we were 30-year-olds, when we were vulnerable. It's very dangerous to act like an old man, like nothing bad can happen to you, nobody can touch you, and you really lose the grace of God in your life. Why don't you remember what it was like to use courtly manners and to treat people carefully when you knew you were vulnerable? Why don't you go back and depend upon the Lord to show you how to act? David's actually right now forgetting who he is, and he's forgetting who the Lord is, and he's forgetting whose servant he is, and he's rising up now and acting like a tyrant. That's what's happening. Now, I, look, I'm not making any excuses for Nabal. The guy's an idiot. We all know that. But how are you going to treat an idiot? Well, David's starting to treat an idiot like an idiot. That's his problem. And so often old men do that, and people who think they have power do that. So he gets about 400 men with their swords on. This is a, this is a considerable little battalion here getting ready to engage Nabal and his people. So sometimes evil and folly just overwhelm us. Uh, we have a situation in front of us that makes us very angry. Some of us have anger management problems anyway. Somebody provokes us, and they're truly wrong. Anybody can see that the one who's provoking us is wrong. Anybody can see that the person provoking us deserves to be dealt with. The question is not whether they deserve to be dealt with. The question is, what are you going to do? And the question is whether you're going to deal with yourself or not. And sometimes we just feel like we're being overwhelmed by evil and folly. And I want you to look at verses 14 through 31. Roman numeral number two on your outline. God providentially intervenes on our behalf. For God's anointed 
David, God is going to intervene for him. And we've said many times before, David is the Lord's anointed. Of course, he's the forerunner and the father of Jesus Christ, who is the Lord's anointed with a capital A. And we're little Christs. We're anointed. God is going to intervene on his anointed's behalf, just like he's going to intervene for you. When in your apparent strength, you're tempted to act out in human strength and power to exercise your own will, exercise your own power, and even your own vengeance, which is what David's doing. God's going to intervene for you. He does for his own people. Now let's look how he does it. First of all, in verses 14 through 17, there's a beautifully unnamed person here. We have no idea who this is. But one of the young men goes to Abigail and tells him, tells her the story. God has done all manner of things for you, and you're not even aware of, of what he's doing for you. You know, uh, when uh, Paul uh, was in custody in Jerusalem before he went to Caesarea, uh, his nephew informed him about a plot against him. So who gave Paul this nephew at just this time in his life to inform him of what was going to happen to him. I mean, there are all kinds of things that are happening behind the scenes that you're not even aware of. Sometimes you become aware of them later. Most of the time, you're never aware of them. God is orchestrating everything together, just like he does here. He puts it on the heart of one of Nabal's servants to go talk to Nabal's wife. Now, that's a dangerous thing to do. Whenever you get in between a man and his wife, you can be the one that has your head cut off. This is a dangerous thing, but God puts it on the heart of this man to do that. And we don't even know his name. And God is doing this kind of thing for you all the time. I remember uh, before I became a Christian, when I was working with Bethlehem Steel Corporation, I went to a sort of an industry meeting of some sort. It was a little, little banquet. Uh, and uh, I sat across from a guy. And I'll never forget his question. He said, oh, you know, we were, I, didn't, I had never met him. We were just meeting different people in the industry. And, and he just looked at me and said, um, what do you think is the most important thing in life? And uh, I kind of knew where he was headed, and I was really resenting it. This guy probably is a Christian. Uh, so I said, well, uh, you know, happiness. I, I didn't know it at the time, but that's what Aristotle said. That was, that was my Aristotelian phase of life. Uh, so uh, I said, uh, I suppose happiness. And then he said, and so uh, what do you think makes a person happy? Well, then I looked at the guy next to me, and I changed the subject. But obviously, uh, 40 years later, I remember that conversation. That man was putting a seed in my mind, and I knew I did not have a good answer for what he was asking me. I dissed him. I actually insulted him, I'm sure, by just ignoring him. But he left a seed in my mind. You know what? I can't wait to meet him again. <laughs> I want to get his name. I want to give him a big hug. I want to thank him for just planting a seed in my mind. I didn't become a Christian for another year later. But... That man helped me. He just started me on the road to asking the question. Just a real simple thing. Now, how did he get there, and how did I end up across the table from him? And there's only one answer to that. You know that. The Lord was at work. Now, I don't know how you became a believer if you're a believer this morning. I don't know how that happened, but I guarantee you there are all kinds of people. They could just, we just line them up, people that God was using in certain times of your, in seasons of your life to bring you to himself. Here's just one little example of it. There's just this unnamed messenger. And we've got all kinds of unnamed angels, unnamed messengers out there in our lives for whom we're grateful. Let's just give God thanks for it. But now, 
Also notice he uses amazing people. He uses unnamed messengers in verse 18, 31, uh, 18 through 31. He uses amazing people. This Abigail, I, I don't know, uh, I, sometimes when I uh, study uh, Abigail, I, I get a little worried that I'm, that I'm uh, being lustful toward Abigail. I love this woman. I just think she's absolutely terrific. And I don't know if you can have an affair with somebody in the Bible or not, but if it were, if it were, if it were possible, I think I'd be guilty. I mean, this woman is just absolutely wonderful. She's, she's beautiful. She's discreet. She's godly. She's courageous. She's shrewd. <laughs> she's absolutely wonderful. And, it, and when you're being bad, she doesn't cooperate with you. I mean, this is unbelievable, this woman. And uh, uh, Ralph Davis, in his commentary, calls her a savior in skirts. <laughs> and that's really what she is. She's, and he, he also calls her the Lord's stop sign. And she really is. She's an instrument of the Lord and a, a wonderful one at that. You know, with my daughters, uh, my first daughter, I named after Mary, the mother of Jesus, and her middle name is my wife's name, Allison. So there's Mary Allison. Used two good names there. Then I have a second daughter. I give her the name Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist, and Abigail <laughs> is her middle name. So she's, you know, they all, my daughters have some of these favorite names of mine. And uh, Abigail, you know, the very name uh, Avigail in Hebrew means um, the, uh, my father is my joy, or my father is joy. So Abigail uh, is either, it's probably her heavenly father being spoken about here, but her very name means my father is my joy. And boy, does she ever display it. She's a wonderful example, uh, not just for women, but for men. And we'll, we'll look at that in just a moment. But notice that these amazing people in our lives and we want, to, we want to be amazing people in other people's lives, okay? Uh, and it doesn't take someone with a Harvard degree or, you know, uh, a lot of money or a great personality or good looks, and all of us should be very thankful that it doesn't require any of those things. But it doesn't take someone, uh, it doesn't take those things. It just simply takes someone who's going to draw close to the Lord and walk with Him. And you become an amazing person. And we want to be those folks. First of all, amazing people are the ones who make restitution, Look in verse 18, 19a. She's immediately looking for peace. Now, she has self-interest in this, of course. It's her, you know, it's her uh, family's life, her sons and her servants. She's seeking to protect them, but she's immediately making restitution. She's looking for ways to reconcile people. She's a great peacemaker. It's absolutely wonderful. And this restitution is she immediately goes out and makes an offering. And the offering is big enough to feed 600 men. Now, they're getting ready to have a feast, so she just kind of steals the property, if you will, and uh, take, just takes it out. And they had so much stuff, they didn't even notice it was gone. So she just takes out of their abundance. She takes a massive offering to David to make restitution. Notice also um, these amazing people properly assess evil. Because you'll notice in 19b, she did not tell her husband Nabal. It's like, you know, if you know someone's going to take good information and use it for evil, you have no obligation to tell them. And Abigail provides one of the most beautiful examples of how a wife or a husband, but in this case most directly, a wife is to deal with a disobedient husband. You don't go along with his disobedience. She doesn't tell him anything. She goes and manages it on her own because he has given himself to folly. She has no obligation to submit to tomfoolery. She has no obligation to submit to foolishness and to, to evil. 
and she's now going to submit to the Lord. And you know, I've had uh, women uh, in, in congregations before who would come to me and say, you know, Pastor, I would go to church, but you know, my husband doesn't really want to, and I just want to submit to my husband. And I'm saying, BS. Why do you submit to that? Your husband's being a fool. He's being wicked. And so you're going to participate in wickedness with him and displease the Lord. Look, we, we, we have orders of authority in life, and we, we submit. We submit to policemen. We submit to school teachers. We submit all over the place. Submit to bosses at work. But when someone's doing something evil or ungodly, we are obligated not to submit in that given practice or that given order that's given us. We have to not submit. Just like the midwives in Exodus who did not submit to Pharaoh and therefore Moses is born and stays alive because they didn't submit to Pharaoh's decree to wipe out all the boys. So there are times when you have to disobey authority and some wives who are in their insecurity and their self-centered desire to have their husband's affections they go along with his foolishness instead of standing up for what's right. Not this woman. Avi Gail, my father is my joy. She, her name doesn't mean my husband is my joy. So your father must be your joy and nobody else can take that place. And she guards her heart even in marriage. She guards her heart only for the Lord. And no one can trespass on that property of her own heart. It's an absolutely wonderful thing here what she does. So she does not tell her husband Nabal. And then look, go on down and look at verse 25 and see what else she does. She says, let not my Lord regard this worthless fellow, literally a man of Belial. Let not my Lord regard this worthless fellow Nabal, for his name is, so is he. Nabal, fool. Nabal is his name and folly is with him. But I, your servant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. So she disassociates herself from the evil in her own family. Some of the evils in our own society, you can just see them passed down from generation to generation. We know the Bible even teaches us that through the generations come blessing and curse. And one reason is that you end up protect, trying to protect the reputation of your daddy and your granddaddy and your uncles. And some of them were racist, and you try to act like they're not. And one reason you don't want to take a stand on social justice sometimes is because your daddy didn't, and you don't want to imply that he was wrong by doing something different than he did. I see that often in racism, uh, having grown up in the South. There's this unspoken protection of previous generations, people who are not willing to say, Nabal, we had some foolishness in our family. Call it what it is. Avigail. My father is my joy. Is he your joy? If he is, then nobody takes his place. And everybody, everybody comes under the judgment of God alone. And that doesn't mean you hate anybody. It doesn't mean you're showing disrespect to anybody. But it means you're calling it what it is. And Abigail does it. So she not only goes and just tries to make up and protect herself, she declares where evil is and what it is. There are very subtle forms of tribalism in the church and in the society where we show undue favoritism to family and to close friends. And we overly protect them from the judgment of God and His Word in certain circumstances. And it's important for us all to examine our lives. Is God your, your joy? 
Is God the only one you're seeking to please? Or are you seeking to manipulate the feelings of others for your own security's sake and for your own self-esteem to keep their loyalty by ignoring their sin? Abigail would have none of it. She properly assesses evil. We must too if we're to be these amazing people. I mean, the most difficult thing is when your friends are uh, sinning and you're confronted with what to do about it. I want a, cla- a classic example for me. Uh, uh, I, I graduated from Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, and there were two professors there who were the old deans, if you will. Uh, they, didn't, they weren't formally deans, but everyone recognized them as the deans of the seminary. Ram, Dr. Ramsey Michaels, New Testament professor, been there for years since the founding of Gordon-Conwell, and Dr. Roger Nicole in the theology department, uh, there since the founding of Gordon-Conwell Seminary. And uh, they were both my professors. Well, after I graduated, there was, a, there was a controversy. Dr. Ramsey Michaels had published something that technically was contrary to the evangelical faith. He had violated a very important principle, in a doctrinal principle in our faith. So there was a big turmoil. What are we going to do with Dr. Michaels? And so the faculty had to vote to dismiss this old, respected professor. Now, they knew that alumni like myself would be very disappointed about this, and a lot of the alumni would be upset because when you have a professor who's teaching you to love the Bible and love the Lord, you're saying, what are you doing? My professor, da-da-da. So they sent out a letter to the alumni. And let me tell you who wrote it, Dr. Roger Nicole. And he, everybody knew he and Ramsey were like that, best friends, served together for 30 years on Gordon-Conwell faculty. Roger wrote the letter. And he explained what happened. And at the end of it, he quoted Martin Luther's hymn. And here's what he said. As the old hymn goes, let goods and kindred go, New Testament professors also. <laughs> That's a remarkable statement. And of course, uh, Dr. Cole had a great sense of humor and everybody knew it. But they also knew what he was saying. Look, if I can let Ramsey Michaels go, you can too. Now put your big boy pants on. We've got a kingdom to serve. We have a God that we respond to. We have to discharge our duties. It doesn't matter who it is. So I'm not, I'm not suggesting that we should be unloving or unkind or undevoted or disloyal to our friends or family. I'm just saying you have a loyalty that transcends them all, and that is your Father in heaven. Abigail got it. Notice in verses 20 through 23, number 3, these amazing people whom God uses to intervene humble themselves. So she rode on a donkey, and she, uh, verse 23, she gets down from the donkey and falls before David on her face and bows to the ground. Now later on you'll see she calls him my Lord. So she calls herself a handmaid or a servant. Now guys, this is, just think of the wealthiest family that you know in Memphis. Think of the wife in that family. Okay, you got that person in your mind? Okay. Now she comes to you and calls herself your servant and gets down on the ground before you and bows. Is that not embarrassing? I mean, the most prominent woman in Memphis gets down and calls herself your servant. Now that's, that's what I call humility. And she knows that this is what needs to be displayed. So she's not just manipulative, she is humbling herself. She's 
she's taking off the accoutrements of her glory as a very rich, prominent uh, woman. And she is bowing down before David and calling him my Lord. And David, you know what her husband calls David? A runaway slave. Who's this guy? Nobody. He's a nobody. But she recognizes God's hand and favor upon him. She bows before him. Tremendous humility. If you want to be an amazing person in somebody else's life, I don't see how you're going to do it without humility. You've got to be the servant of God's people. You can't really be the, the instrument of the Lord intervening for God, helping them, unless you humble yourself before them and become their servants, honestly, from your heart. You can't lord over them and uh, be God's instrument to intervene. Fourthly, look in verse 24. She takes responsibility, and we must too. And this is an amazing statement she makes. On me alone, she says, verse 24, be the guilt. That's amazing. She says, David, my Lord, whatever you were going to do to Nabal, I want you to do it to me. Do you remember how Paul uses the same sort of language when he in Philemon, the book of Philemon, writes for us the Magna Carta of Liberty for all slaves for all time in that great letter. I, I, I love Philemon. It's what Matthew Henry calls a, a pitiful letter. You get the passion of Paul, just deep passion of Paul, humbling himself before Philemon, who is the master of the runaway slave. And he says to Philemon, Philemon, you know, not only do you owe, owe me your very life, <coughs> because I led you to Christ, uh, uh, and I'm going to be visiting you later on uh, when I come to see you, so I'll be checking you out on this, but this man is not only uh, your, uh, your slave who's returning home, he's your brother. That word brother ended slavery, or ended the legitimacy for slavery uh, for the next 2,000 years. Then we have slavery in this world, but the legitimacy of it was gone when Paul says to Philemon, this man's your brother. Who can enslave a brother? And David's using, I mean, rather, Paul uses the same sort of language. Paul says, just charge it to me. Whatever, whatever he cost you as a runaway slave, whatever you think you need as a result, of, just charge it to my account. Yeah, right. Paul's in prison. <laughs> what, what does he have? It's a, it's a funny uh, statement he makes. Just charge it to my credit card. He doesn't have any credit anywhere. He doesn't have any money. Paul just says, just blame me. And you, you see the very nature of, of love. Abigail is lovingly putting herself in the place of a person who's a fool, but also putting herself in the place of all of her servants who are about ready to be slain. And she says, just put the guilt on me. Is that not what, exactly what Jesus did? Is she not walking in the steps of the future Messiah who comes and, he, and Jesus just says, Lord, put the guilt on me. And Jesus takes all the guilt for us and pleads for us. I mean, this is what... Love does. It gets in between, seeks to make restitution, seeks to reconcile, and at the cost of one's own life. That's exactly what Abigail's doing. And if you're really going to be a reconciler, really going to be an amazing person, you have to be this servant, humble yourself, and take the charge to yourself. Take the hit. Your, I mean, it, there's, this is the demonstration of godly love. We take responsibility for it ourselves. Fifthly, look at verse 26. The amazing person is one who acknowledges God's gracious providence. Now, she's the first one who mentions it here in verse 26, but David repeats it in verses 33, 34, and 39. 
he acknowledges this is God's providence. She says, now then, my Lord, as the Lord lives, and as your soul lives. So she's uniting David's soul to the fact that God lives. She sees the connection there. And then she says, because the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt. It's amazing. You see how theologically bright she is? How keen this amazing person is of God's presence in this activity? That we're not just going about as human beings trying to negotiate with each other and make a deal. And No, she's very aware of the intervention of God. And she's, she's basically praising the Lord because the Lord, David, has restrained you. My Lord, He's restrained you. Not Abigail, not this beautiful woman. The Lord has come in and done it. And she introduces this idea that David picks up on, and it was, we'll see in just a few moments. And then notice, sixthly, uh, we ask for forgiveness. And she says, okay, I've taken the guilt to myself. Now, would you please forgive me? Gentlemen, could you turn down that offer? <laughs> you know I couldn't. I'm in love with her. I couldn't possibly turn down that Of course I forgive you. You see the majesty of what she's doing? In, and all because she's aware of the Lord's presence. She's aware of this big picture that's going on. And she sees her role rightly as handmaid and servant, uh, as interceder and pleader with the Lord's anointed. It's an amazing thing. She asks for forgiveness. Now verse uh, 28b and 29. Seventhly, these amazing people, they acknowledge God's favor upon us. She reminds David of who he is. It's amazing. She says, David, don't you remember? The Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house. Evil shall not be found in you. And look at verse 29 at the end. And the lies of your enemies he shall sling out as from the hollow of a sling. David, don't you understand? You're the king. And you're a moral king. You're God's king. There's to be no evil in you. And don't you understand, David, that when you're the Lord's anointed, He takes care of your enemies. And when you take it into your hand to exercise vengeance, you are denying who you really are as the child of God and as one who's under His protection and as one who will be avenged in His own time. So she, in her very feminine and wise way, reminds David of who he is. Oh, what a remarkable woman, a godly woman. She's saying the Lord will handle your enemies. David has repeated, or rather God has repeatedly provided David with protection and a way of escape. But David is forgotten. And she renews David's memory of who he is and who God is. And then eighthly, this amazing person uh, reminds us of God's prerogatives. She says, David, the Lord has appointed you prince over Israel. And uh, if you follow my advice, you'll have no cause of grief or pangs of conscience for having shed blood without cause. For my Lord, um, or for my Lord working salvation himself. There's the key to David's problem. Working salvation himself. David, he will make you king, and he will handle your enemies. Now, gentlemen, this is the reason that you find not only in Proverbs, but you have it picked up again in Romans 12, where Paul says you're to love your enemies. Jesus taught that in the Sermon on the Mount. You're to love your enemies. 
you're to return good for the evil that comes to you. And this is what it means to be the Lord's anointed. This is what it means to have the fullness of the Spirit. This is what the Spirit of Christ does in us. He empowers us to do what nobody else does. And you won't find in any other religion in the world, ever, that you're to love your enemies. You'll find it only in the true religion through Jesus Christ. You're to love your enemies. Why? Because He loved His enemies. And that's how you and I became believers in Christ, if we're believers today. It's only because He loved people who were opposed to Him, who had surrendered all rights to His favor, who would have to have amnesty to be accepted into the kingdom. And that's exactly what He gave us. So we are taught to walk in His steps, and we do not avenge ourselves. And Paul gives the, the answer. The answer is that one day... God will avenge you. So when you go out avenging yourself, what you're denying is the truth that God will one day avenge you Himself. So you're trying to take the role that God alone reserves for Himself. You're trying to save yourself. So when you wreak vengeance, even I'm talking about vengeance against someone who justifiably offended you. Someone who acted unjustly toward you, defrauded you, lied to you, deceived you, hurt you. When you seek to avenge yourself, I'm not talking about maintaining the law. I'm not talking about being a witness in criminal court. I'm not talking about asking for payment for, for property that was taken. I'm not talking about justice. I'm talking about personal vengeance. When you seek to take personal vengeance, you're trying to save yourself. Abigail reminds them of this. I just reminded you of it. Do you know who these amazing people are? Abigail seems like a, an all-star, you know, someone we could never imitate. No, you're the amazing people. Just simple people like us who have had the Messiah come inside our lives and lead us to live the way he lived. This is what Abigail did. Now, the big challenge, of course, is uh, how we're going to respond. And I remember just a little example of my own life of vengeance. One day I was at my desk in my office and Susan Nash, uh, who will play the role of Abigail here for just a moment, she, uh, she was on our staff and she walked in and she put a little, just a little letter to the editor from the newspaper. It was cut out, just a little thing about that long. She just slid it right in front of my eyes and said, why don't you read that? That's interesting. So I read it and it said something like this, best I remember, this is 15 years ago, but it said... Uh, uh, dear uh, uh, you know, editor of the paper, I'd just like to complain about some big church who thinks they're hot stuff right there on Poplar Avenue, who every Sunday they park their cars all the way down the road thinking that the rest of us don't want to use that highway for some reason. And uh, it just seems to me these big wealthy churches ought to give a little bit of, of, of respect and help to those of us who are the neighbors in the community. Signed, and he gave his name. And I won't give you his name. And I said, oh, okay, so why'd you give me that today? And she said, look at the name at the bottom. I looked at it and I said, I don't know. She said, he played in our orchestra just last Sunday. He, he, she said, he was an orchestra, orchestral player. And I looked at it and I said, well, thank you. I said, the operative word is was. 
and I passed it right back to her. I mean, that's a no-brainer, right? No-brainer. And here's what she said. She pushed it back, and she said, you might want to reconsider. That's all the woman needed to say. You might want to reconsider. And just stop and think about it. Lord, I don't need you. I don't need anything you have. Certainly don't need somebody to die on a cross for me. I'm going to live my own life. Here, take that. And uh, I was living a good life. He says the operative word is was. But he reconsidered, didn't he? And so must you. You always reconsider. You always live life in light of the gospel. So what is David going to do? Verses 32 through 44, first of all, he blesses the Lord. He thanks the Lord. David immediately recognizes. Look at this. He says in verse 32, the God of Israel who sent you this day. He immediately sees that God has intervened upon him. The problem is when your wife speaks to you, you just think it's your nagging wife again. Would you please reconsider that? I have an elder friend of mine. uh, His name is Richard. Not in this church. He was in a previous church I served. And he told me one time that he said, Sandy, I actually prayed this one day. I was humble before the Lord, and I said, Lord, just teach me any way you will, but please don't use Suzanne. (laughs) You you know, yeah, you get what he's saying. Mm -hmm. Anybody but my wife, please, Lord. Yeah, your Abigail is going to come to you every once in a while. And here's the question. Are you going to listen to the Lord and through her? And when someone's speaking wisdom to you, you've got to listen. David heard it. He was angry. He was ready to wreak vengeance. He was ready finally to win a battle, to be able to do something with his own hands. He's been on the run. He's got these violent men with him who want to fight. They're Marines. They want to fight. He's finally got a justifiable war right on his hands. But it's all for his vengeance. And God intervenes. He recognizes it. So we bless the Lord. He praised Him. Secondly, we bless His servants. We commend their character. David said, Blessed be your discretion. And he gave her credit for her character. Instead of running her down and saying, Abigail, listen, honey, I understand how you feel. You've got a lot of people here. You're a really sweet gal. Now, please get out of the way. I've got, bus- got business to do. You wouldn't understand it. No, he commends her as his superior. He recognizes virtue when he sees it. And a humbled man will. And we acknowledge our own folly. Isn't this ironic? David's going to go take care of a fool. You know how he's going to do it? By being a total fool himself. And David acknowledges it. He confesses his sin. And we know, of course, in other instances as well, David had this one down. Why? He was a man after God's own heart. That's why. He acknowledges his folly. Thirdly, we accept their help. You need help. You need help from amazing people who intervene on you, who look very simple. But they're amazing people because they approach you in the name of the Lord. And he accepted her help and humbled himself and realized, you know what? Even in my strength, I still need help. Desperately need help. I need more help now that I have strength and authority than when I'm running in my weakness. Now lastly, C, verses 36 through 44, we wait upon the Lord. He will vindicate us, and He does. Look at the brevity of verse 38. And about ten days later, the Lord struck Nabal and he died. The brevity of that verse is very intentional. David's got all these plans, strap your sword on, come on boys, 400 people, guard the baggage, we're going to get that guy. 
the Lord struck him and he was dead. That's it. And that's all you need. And all of you have people who are after you. And they've served either intentionally or unintentionally as servants of the devil. Don't you worry about it. There's coming a day, verse 38, he strikes them, they're gone, you're delivered. Leave it with him when it comes to personal vengeance. He will vindicate us. And then secondly and lastly, 39 through 44, he will bless us in the presence of our enemies. Blessed be the Lord who has avenged the insult I received at the hand of Nabal and has kept back his servant from wrongdoing. There you have it again. God's providence in preserving us. David trusted the Lord. He eventually got his food. He eventually got his vengeance. And he got a really beautiful wife. Good deal. It's a whole lot better, gentlemen, when you trust the Lord and receive His salvation rather than trying to save yourself. I'll guarantee you. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this marvelous story when in our apparent strength, yet actual weakness spiritually, we attempt the foolishness of saving ourselves by avenging ourselves against others. Please intervene on us again today. Preserve us from this great sin. Use the messengers you will use, even our wives, and the amazing people around us, that we may hear their voice and obey them just because they speak the word of the Lord to us. Help us now to be the men who trust you and who eagerly await your blessing, both now and in the great day to come. We make our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.